The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Welcome to another uh, episode of Museum Life. This is Carol Bossert. I'm so glad that you have chosen to take your time this morning and join us. I am joined today by Claire Brown, and I think she is just the perfect guest to be talking about three-dimensional storytelling. I have been fascinated uh, with the number of web posts, blogs, discussions about storytelling, not necessarily storytelling in museums, which is something that uh, I've been doing for most of my career and many of us listening to this program have, but storytelling in other aspects of our world, such as marketing, uh, storytelling through marketing, storytelling through social media. It seems that everything is a story. And that got me really thinking about, well, how unique is the exhibition medium when it comes to this storytelling? Uh, We've always said that it is a uh, unique medium like no other, uh, this sort of ability to immerse people into content and experiences. But what really does that mean? And um, how can we... How are we now defining exhibits as storytellers? Does that limit us in some way? How can we push the boundaries of this medium uh, or make better use of our assets? And so that's why I've asked Claire to come on and and have this discussion with me today. Many of you probably know uh, Claire. She is the program head for the Masters of Arts program in Exhibition Design at the Corcoran School of Arts and Design at George Washington University. Uh, She's been a professor for eight years and She's also a practicing exhibition designer uh, for nearly 20 years. Uh, Claire is going to tell us more about her background, but uh, some of you may know her as the designer for the First Ladies' Gowns exhibition at the uh, Smithsonian's Museum of American History. I know it's always been one of my favorite exhibitions, and I'm sure Claire will talk more about that experience as well as the other uh, aspects of her career. So, Claire, welcome to the show today. I'm so glad you could join us. 
Oh, thank you so much, Carol. It's really, really a pleasure to be with you today. So, Claire, uh, I did hint a little bit about your background, but uh, knowing that so many of our listeners are emerging um, museum professionals, I think it would really help us uh, in this discussion if you could just share a bit about your career trajectory and highlighting those experiences that have shaped your thinking about the museum profession and specifically exhibition design. Sure, yeah. Well, first of all, I love that question. Um, <laughs> I love that question because so many exhibition designers that I know um, and so many applicants to the the Master of Arts in Exhibition Design program are people who have really diverse backgrounds. And I have found that, uh, like me, most people that I meet in this field um, have come to it from very different paths. Um, so I'm always interested to hear what other people have to say as well. Um, so I grew up in Africa and Asia. Um, I, I learned classical Indian dance. I was very interested in the arts. Um, and when I came to the United States for, to go to college, um, I decided to continue my international background or continue my international um, connection. And I received a degree in cultural anthropology uh, with a focus in the arts. And I was really interested in doing ethnographies of uh, fading artistic methods. And, for instance, I did one in Ireland about lace making. Um, But throughout my college years and later into my graduate school years, I worked in the theater. Uh, I was a theater tech. I did a lot of set production, set design, and I did a lot of lighting design. So I really got the hang of, you know, working with my hands and creating environments that tell stories. Um, And so while that wasn't part of my formal education, it certainly was part of my formalizing what I was interested in doing. And uh, after after college, I was trying to figure out how do I make a living doing all these things that I'm interested in. And I ended up getting a degree in museum studies, thinking that museums are the perfect place to pull together all these varied interests and backgrounds. And I think I was right, because I have had a really fantastic career in museums uh, doing exhibition design, and I, um, I have continued to develop my skills and now teach people about uh, storytelling within three-dimensional environments. Um, and let's see, I was also going to tell you, I, I worked as the exhibition designer at the museum in Washington, D.C. I worked for a design firm in New York City. I later freelanced quite a bit in New York City, and I was the exhibition designer at the New York Historical Society. All that was before I went to the Smithsonian. <laughs> so I've been around to a lot of different places, and, um, and it's been really rewarding. It's, it's a great field to be in. I think that's very interesting. I want to highlight uh, just a couple of things that you said. I've, I have been, as you know, I've been asking this question to most of the guests that I have on my show, and there is sort of a recurring theme of people coming from having diverse interests and diverse backgrounds and seeing museums as a place that they can put it all together. But I think the other interesting uh, part of what of your experience is in your theater production work and that uh, mm-hmm. I was just thinking yes, uh, yesterday as we were getting I was getting ready for this interview uh, how much uh, theater design and exhibition design have in common 
um, even though one is, you know, one we're just looking at uh, and one we're, we're, we are uh, looking in, but, um, and we may, we may talk about that a little bit, bit more, but I, I do think that some of my colleagues uh, who truly enjoy working in museum exhibitions have come from that theater background. I, I just find that fascinating. It is. I mean, it's a, there's a great connection between the two. I think you said it very well. Um, you know, in theater production, you are creating stories that people observe. Um, you become part of it emotionally and sort of, you know, um, sensorially, but you're not actually immersed in it um, physically. And then you transition into exhibition design, and now you're creating spaces where people actually become the players within the space. And you know, and that ties very closely to my, my interest in cultural anthropology, where, um, which I think has influenced everything I've done, where I think a lot about human-centered design and how uh, what we create affects people and how we can design with people uh, directly in mind. That's interesting. Could you um, just explain that a little, little bit more, what you mean by human-centered design? Yeah, Sure. So this is a term that um, is more and more uh, in the public sphere these days. Um, companies like IDEO um, are very uh, are strong promoters of design thinking or human-centered design. Um, and the basic principles of that are um, that design is really not about what something looks like. It's really about how it functions. And in order to create something that functions well, you have to know who you're designing for and with. And so... Um, Really understanding audiences is a central part of my practice as an exhibition designer. Uh, I, it is almost impossible, actually, I think, to design something well if you don't know how it's going to be used. Um, if you don't know what people are bringing to the experience in the first place, um, what their background is, what their interests are. Um, so so th- for me, that's the focus on humans when I'm developing exhibitions. You know, Claire, one of the, the the challenges that I'm I'm sure that you have encountered, uh, and um, and I encounter as well, is is that when we're sitting around a table, we're talking to you know our team, and we'll get into teams in a minute. Uh, we're talking to to our team, and we're saying, okay, well, who is our audience? Um, particularly when I'm working with uh, with with uh, out. Um, with clients, they often will say, "Well, everybody is our mm-hmm. is our audience. We want everybody to feel free to to come to our institution and see this wonderful exhibit." Uh, certainly, the Smithsonian is the you know it, uh, our welcomes the uh, nation and world to the, to their steps. So, how how do you break that down? Because you know, when you're thinking about everybody, that means that they don't have a face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, okay, so I think there's a couple parts to that question. Um, first of all, I, I don't really believe that exhibits are ever really designed for everybody. Um, and, and part of that is a choice. <laughs> I'm choosing to believe that. Uh, and, and that is because even though, you know, say I'm working at the Smithsonian, and I know that it's the general public, that it's a large tourist audience, um, so you're getting families, you're getting individuals, you're getting people of all ages and all backgrounds. The, the fact of the matter is that everybody will come, but it is possible to make design choices based on a particular audience that you really want to appeal to or really want to create for. 
um, or create with even. Um, I can give you a, a short example. I've talked about this in other um, forums before, but uh, when I designed the First Ladies exhibit, uh, I, you know, I'm the most recent in a hundred years of the First Ladies collection being on, on view, being designed, and so many other designers have designed that exhibition before me. And and one of the things that I thought about in designing it was all the people who have already seen it. Um, and it came to mind uh, actually through observation uh, before the previous installation was taken down that. Many women uh, come to see the First Lady's gowns, and many of them are coming with, um, it, it is mixed generation. So it might be an older woman with her daughter or her grandchild, granddaughter, for instance. And there is a lot of um, storytelling that happens actually between the two people or within that small visitor group. And it's a multi-generational version of storytelling. So I actually heard firsthand things like, when I came to see this exhibit, when I was a child, I remember looking at this, or, or Eleanor Roosevelt's dress was my favorite. Um, and I really wanted to tap into that dynamic within the audience and to create an exhibit that allows that to perpetuate. And so if you were to visit the Smithsonian now, the, the exhibition is very um, very classic looking, but it also has a lot of references back to earlier installations of the First Lady's gowns. I did a lot of reference research uh, into how it, they had been displayed before. So I cre- and I also did another thing, which is I created an environment that has exceptional lighting. It is the largest installation of fiber optic lighting in at the Smithsonian, and we um, we were able to we did that purposefully. So that when women of you know who might be older, have, who might have um, vision impairments, low vision, or even just you know just minor uh, impairments of vision, would really be able to see the gowns in the best way possible, and at the same time then facilitate that communication to the younger audiences. So, um, so that's one example of designing where I know everyone's coming, but I chose to design, and I actually think we created a better design because we constrained who we were designing for. That is very interesting. Thank you for that that uh, great um, great example. And 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 as you were talking, it just brought back so many memories of when I visited the Smithsonian the first time with my mom. And that's exactly mm-hmm. what we did. And uh, and mm-hmm. while I don't have a daughter to uh, to bring uh, to the show, I when I when I saw the reinstallation, which by the way I was really upset about. I didn't think it needed to ever be changed. Uh, but I was, was so terribly uh, impressed and 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 really grateful that uh, some of the things that I remember uh, as a child were kept there, uh, and and uh, and I never knew the uh, the story behind it. But uh, thank you so very very much. It uh, uh, everybody needs to see the exhibit, but I think it's also a really great example of how you put a face uh, on mm-hmm. on your audience and um, and. And did sort of push through the we're for everybody kind of experience. Mm-hmm. We have a whole lot more to talk about, but before I launch into another set of questions uh, for Claire, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, more with Claire Brown about uh, 3D storytelling. We'll be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert from Museum Life. 
stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content, and at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn or call her directly at 240-432-7712. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life, and I'm here today with Claire Brown, and we're talking exhibition design. And um, before we went to break, Claire was sharing with us her experiences of focusing on on audience and audience-centered design. She gave a great example about uh, the Smithsonian's uh, First Lady's Dresses exhibits, which she uh, did design. Uh, So, Claire, that actually brings to mind uh, one of sort of you've talked a little bit about your your process but um, I I have found sometimes that there is a real disconnect maybe it's just a language barrier between designers and the rest of us uh, how how do you sort of um, help uh, designers uh, explain their their process to non-designers so that we can all be part of the same team yeah, so that's a good question. Um, you know, I think not all there's not always a disconnect, but but you're right that um, there sometimes that is is an issue. And I think if there is a disconnect between designers and non-designers, I think it comes from the fact that design is actually a process, um, and it's really not an outcome. And I think I think sometimes it is difficult for non-designers to to grasp the fact that designers are not solely interested in creating something um, that is aesthetically pleasing, for instance. Um, often designers are, I think, more interested in the process of identifying what the challenges are and then working with the team to find elegant and creative solutions to, what those, to those challenges. Um, 
I think when there are issues on on exhibition project teams, sometimes it stems from the fact that uh, those teams might expect that they will work out all of the content and then hand that content to the designer who will then sort of do the space planning, fit it in the room, choose the colors. And then whereas designers, on the other hand, are more interested in, in learning why the content was chosen, what questions were asked to get to the content answers, and, and what that implies then for how the design should reflect the big ideas that have been generated. So I think, you know, I think that that is, it, it's, the, it's the notion that design, design and designers is about process and not so much just being the technician that places things nicely in a space. Um, I, well, yeah. I think that's, that is a very good, um, very good point. And uh, I know when Tim McNeil and I were talking uh, several months ago on the show, he was saying something similar. I think, uh, well, he, he mentioned that, that uh, as designers, we don't necessarily do the best at explaining what it is we do uh, and I think mm-hmm. you've, you've uh, sort of done you've, you've expressed that as well as it's not just uh, picking paint colors and saying put the nail here uh, I think sometimes uh, as well and though there are process people and there are outcome people and I think sometimes if you know a museum director of course has to be concerned about the outcome uh, of uh, or the funder needs to be concerned about the outcome and so when they're asked about well you know is this going to be a great exhibit and who's going to come and and uh, how are we going to display it they probably get a little frustrated uh, when the when a designer says well you know it's a long process and we'll finally get there but we will do it within your time and your budget right 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 um, yeah you know it, it's interesting because even when I do get onto a project team where content is completely, completely decided already, um, which, you know, is probably half or more than half of the time, um, I often bring in some of those human-centered design techniques. Um, and I, and it's, it's really it's a necessity for me because I can't design unless I really understand the backstory. Um, and, and I would guess that many other designers are, are similar in that, um, whether they have a background in anthropology or not. Um, I, I often ask a lot of why questions, you know, and I, I don't know if, <laughs> I hope it's not annoying, but I, the thing is that it's very difficult for a designer to create something if we don't know why we're doing it. Um, design, design is something that it, it needs to respond to constraints. It needs to respond to what has come before. Um, and it really isn't just a process of arranging objects in a gallery, um, so I've found that I'm most successful in achieving the goals of the exhibition team when I really know more about what the design needs to respond to. Well, you gave one example with the uh, first ladies' dresses, and I think that that, that made, uh, made some sense. Do you have another example that you can share? Yeah, um... Well, you know, this is interesting. This isn't so much part of a a project team example, but but it is uh, an instance where I've designed something where where it responds to um, constraints or human factors. Um, I'm sure you've seen the ubiquitous uh, 
uh, museum theater, the, the gallery theater. Um, sometimes they're called mini theaters. Sometimes they're called intro films. Um, you know, very often you will find a video piece within an exhibition, and oftentimes it's housed within a little space that is a theater. And um, what I have observed um, over years of being asked to do this is that so many times that little mini theater is completely empty, and people choose to walk past it. Um, but what I also find is that sometimes there's nobody in there, but there are tons of people crowding around the little doorway uh, to look in to see the movie. But people don't want to actually commit because they, either they don't know how long it is or they don't know what they're going to be seeing and are they going to be bored and is there something much cooler later that they want to get to quicker. And so I've found that the, the common design of those mini theaters is kind of a waste. It, or, and it actually works against the idea that you're probably putting a lot of really valuable content into those videos. Um, and so w one of the things that I've done is to create a leaning wall at the entrance to any mini theater that I would create. And what that is, is it opens up the, it opens up the portal that, or the opening into the, the theater. And it allows people to lean and kind of browse uh, without committing to sitting down. And, of course, there will be people who will sit, but what this does is it'll, it really allows the content of the video to be seen in a comfortable way without requiring the visitor to, you know, make a commitment to sitting uh, and, and watching it. Um, so that, you know, that is not exactly a project team issue, but what that is is, is looking at how uh, human factors really can impact how something gets designed. So you may be asked to create a mini theater, but you don't have to create it in a way that is the you know the standard two walls on either side of the the um, video. That's that is is a great example, and I agree. I I have noticed that uh, myself, and I don't like to go to those mini theaters because you know why do I want to waste my time going to a movie when there are so many other things to see and talk about with my uh, the people I'm I'm uh, sharing the exhibit with. But you know the other thing, Claire, and I and I I want to move to you know sort of shift our our focus a, a little bit. But before I do. It, I would be remiss if I if I didn't point out something that you have uh, you know now said very clearly a couple of times, and that is that in a team, um, you know, the designer uh, doesn't isn't monolithic. Um, sometimes I think that we may be afraid that you know the designer only has one role. Well, in fact, as you've described, they have they have many roles uh, in in helping a, a group of people move a move an idea or project forward. Uh, I'm sure that, and that's true of the educator, and that's true of the content specialist, and that's true of of uh, anyone else who's on the team. They really have the the whole in mind, uh, and their creative. <laughs> people and perhaps one of the lessons is that uh, creating uh, even thinking that everyone is around the table but they only are looking at one little piece of the puzzle is uh, where sometimes we can trip ourselves up at the very beginning mm -hmm. I think that's absolutely true um, I think I don't want to go too far down a path here if it's if it's not exactly the topic you want to talk about but I have some some thoughts on on project team process um, that might alleviate some of that. Um, I, one of the things that I have recognized in my years working in museums and also as an external designer um, is that the that project team process does really delineate according to roles. 
Um, now, I know that um, Polly McKenna-Cress has written a wonderful book with Janet Camion about collaborative process, and, and she talks about it in terms of um, it, people not being defined by their roles, but being advocates for their particular um, area of expertise. And, um, and I think that that's a great way to consider it. But nevertheless, my experience has been that things do get siloed on project teams, and there really isn't enough of a holistic vision for what the entire team is trying to get to accomplish. And um, I think that something that museums need to start looking at are methods of creative process that ex- currently exist outside of the museum world. Um, and those, uh, I, personally, I, I have a strong research focus in what is happening in the digital arena um, outside of museums and how creative process is developed uh, in the digital arena and what we might learn from that. And, you know, so I'm looking at things like agile methodology, for instance. Um, in agile, uh, the, the, the team is working to develop a product that can go, to the, can go straight out to the public as quickly as possible. And in order to develop the ideas for the product, a team using the agile method really doesn't uh, tackle it from subject expertise. It's very egalitarian. And what that means is that all ideas are viable until they're not. <laughs> and so what, what's great about that is that you don't, you don't have one person generating an idea and then everybody sort of marching towards the completion of that idea. You really start with a process that allows for huge amounts of iterative, creative thinking and, and that moves along for so, quite some time until that is then honed down to what the product will be. And I think that um, at that point, it's not that you do this sort of steady march towards completion. At that point, you put it out to the public directly. And then the public comments and gives you feedback and you see what works and what doesn't. So it's really a true prototype at that point. Uh, in the Agile world, it's called um, minimum viable product. And... And I think that if museum, if museum, if museums want to start to create exhibitions that are really more relevant and more creative, and more suited to the types of information exchange that um, people uh, are experiencing in other arenas of their lives, I think we need to start looking at new forms of process. And I really think that um, looking to what the digital world is doing is a it might be a key to revamping the way that museum process is done. That's very, very interesting, and it brings to mind some of the stories that I've that I've read, and you know, a couple of the TED talks from uh, people who work at Apple or Google, uh, and particularly in in some of the early days where you had uh, large groups of people working together, and working together meant talking together. Uh, and mm-hmm. without anyone saying, well, you know, my role is, 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 I have blinders on my role. It only focuses on K-12 education or, uh, and that, that, uh, does seem to be a, a challenge that, that we always have. Well, you've actually pointed up two challenges. One, uh, that we do tend to silo ourselves still after all of these years. Uh, and the second is we tend to be a little insular and we don't look into mm-hmm. other, other, uh, other places. And so it's interesting that this is now uh, a research interest of yours. Yeah, it is. And, you know, it's funny because I, <laughs> 
I, I call myself a designer, and, and yet I keep falling back on all these sort of anthropology things. So it's really anthropology integrated into, into design and process and how people use process to develop creative products to me is, is really fascinating. And, you know, I, I really think that in the museum world, we are, we are this funky, cool hybrid of academic and education and experience and creativity. And I, I fear that sometimes the creativity part gets lost in favor of standard project management processes. Um, and so that's something that I'm really interested in, in investigating right now. That is very interesting. Uh, just as you were using those those terms, you know, quirky and creative, I thought, wow, I want to work there. And then I realize I do. Uh, but it it uh, it does sometimes, you know, you sort of wonder why, if we have all of these ingredients, why we aren't a little more creative. Uh, I know Seb Chan uh, was on the show a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about the uh, the experience that he and his team had of creating a new uh, technology uh, to uh, mm-hmm. uh, to engage in the the content of the uh, Cooper Hewitt, and um, but and the point that he made was that he had the luxury that he feels many museums don't have and uh, museum teams don't have, and that is the opportunity to fail. And I'm assuming that this issue of failure is also something that has to be inherent in this kind of design approach. Absolutely. I mean, that is a huge part of what I was talking about before, this agile agile methodology, um, is that you have to build failure into it. In fact, you have to embrace the failures because from the failures comes something better. The problem that we have, you know, and, and it's understandable. Museums have tight schedules. They have tight budgets. They have tight space. They have audiences expecting to see something. And we come from a long history of very high-level presentation of objects, you know, or stories. And so it is it's sort of like anti-museum to think about putting something on the floor that isn't completely done or something that might fail, but it's okay because we'll learn from it. But I think that if there was a, a sort of, I don't know when this will happen, but a widespread shift within our field, allowing for more of that, um, more of that creativity through failure, creativity through development of process, um, you know, I really do think we would be pushing the boundaries of what we can do. Um, you know, and to to come back to your originally we were we were talking about storytelling. Um, I I really think that sometimes I hope I'm not getting too opinionated here, but no, I, that's I do what the think show's that, about. that sometimes. Okay, I think that sometimes we lose sight, and we as in the museum we um, lose sight of the medium that we're working with. Um, we have. We have a, a medium unlike any other industry. You know, we, we operate in three-dimensional space. We are tackling all senses at one time, and we are telling stories and engaging audiences through all senses in three dimensions and actually in four dimensions because exhibitions are time-based. People move through exhibitions both physically and in according to a set time. And... It is, it's really important for us to not lose sight that there is so much in- intricacy and so much really cool stuff that we could be doing um, 
that right now we kind of don't. You know, I think our process, our process inhibits us to be better storytellers, actually, I think. Interesting, interesting. Well, before we uh, dig a little deeper into that thought, which is very rich, uh, we're going to take a second break. And when we come back, more about storytelling in this unique uh, medium called uh, museum exhibitions. Uh, This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Remember, you can always reach me at carol.bossert at verizon.net or uh, send me a tweet at at MuseWrite. I love to hear from all all of my listeners and former guests, uh, what they're thinking about the show, what we should be talking about uh, in the future, because this is a show uh, by museum professionals for museum professionals. So we will be back in a moment uh, for Museum Life. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com, reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn, or call her directly at 240-432-7712. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert from Museum Life, and I am here with Claire Brown, a fellow exhibit designer and developer, and we are talking about this uh, 3D storytelling medium. And right before we went on, on break, uh, Claire was sharing with us some of the, the challenges that museums have put on themselves in sort of inadvertently narrowing their creative experience expectations and experience of what an exhibition can be. And Claire, I wanted to sort of uh, drill down on on that a little bit. I've often felt that one of the challenges we have, and, and maybe again it's in vocabulary, is when we talk about storytelling, I mean, I often think 
you know, I go back to when I was a little girl and my mother told me a story or I read a story in a book. And uh, those have a very defined beginning, middle, and end. And, uh, and, it's, and it's a linear progression. And I'm wondering, is there, you know, as we sort of begin to think about, question our assumptions, is there a way that we can think about storytelling in the exhibition medium that maybe isn't so linear? Yeah, so that is, is one of my favorite topics, and I talk about this with my students all the time. Um, we, you know, it's so funny. I find it very ironic. Um, in the museum field, there's this mantra, uh, we will not do a book on a wall. <laughs> and what, which I totally agree with, um, because our medium is not uh, the pages of a book. Our medium is the three-dimensional space of a gallery or beyond. And, um, but the irony of it is that so so many times we are actually creating books on walls, even if they seem to be dimensional, multidimensional, there's a video here, there's large format graphic there. It, it is still highly linear. Um, and I think it's, it is a, there's a couple different factors that play into that, and there are some different solutions, I think, to uh, also to, to improving on that. And I think one of the situations that we have with our current museum process is that oftentimes an exhibition script is developed before the design happens. And, and that shouldn't be a problem, except that the exhibition script is often viewed as locked in and final. So while the designer really needs that script or needs to have a document that, um, that really gets into the meat of the exhibition and tells this, the narrative of the story and um, gives us background as to why these, the topics or the, the things are important. Um, the unfortunate thing is that if, you, if you're working in Word doc format, <laughs> you, are, you have to be moving from the top of the page down to the bottom of the page. And that, by necessity, is, you know, you start with the beginning, you talk about the middle, and you, then you craft the conclusion. And, you know, that's the mark of a good academic paper, and that's the mark of a good story, a good written story. Now, when we're dealing with exhibitions, though, People come into an exhibition, and they come into a three-dimensional space, and they don't necessarily start where you think they're going to start, and they don't necessarily walk in the direction you think they're going to walk in. And I think there's this myth that everybody goes from right to left, or they always move counterclockwise around a room. But the fact of the matter is that people go to something that interests them, right? So if they're not that interested in the large text panel that's at the front, which is the intro, and they see something halfway down through the gallery that is really bright and shiny or just really beautiful or really scary, you know, they may go straight for that. And then their experience is very different from what was crafted in the Word doc. Um, there, if you were to, I think it would be actually a really interesting exercise to reorganize the exhibit script according to an observed path of visitor, you know, a visitor path, um, and see what that story ends up being. Um, because I think that, that that's closer to the reality of how most people experience exhibitions and therefore the story. So I think when I talk about this with my students, we do a lot of different things. We actually do uh, visitor tracking, and I ask my students to um, subversively, or what do you call it, um, uh, secretly follow visitors uh, with, a, with a timer and a floor plan, and they actually have to draw and map on a floor plan 
um, the stops that people make and what kind of interaction the, the visitors have um, when they stop. Are they talking to each other and not looking at the exhibit? Are they looking at the exhibit? Are they reading the labels or are they sort of breezing past? Um, and by doing that, it really highlights to my students uh, more of the reality of how people move through three-dimensional space. And then we backtrack and we talk about, well, then how does the story get affected at that point? Um, and how can you then craft a narrative or a story which then works better in a three-dimensional space? So, um, yeah, and the thing that I'm coming to right now with my research into non-museum process is that uh, the digital world, people who develop apps and websites, for instance, are already very much on board with the fact that people are human, humans, uh, <laughs> visitors, people, users, are, um, uh, they don't really use websites and apps in linear fashion. So while back in the early 90s there was navigation, uh, you know, we used to call it navigation on a web page, um, where people would move from the home page to the different sub-pages, then to perhaps like a contact us page at the end. That probably was derived from a written Word doc, like narrative of what that website would, would look like. Websites then were moved into being called, or website developers were moved into being called information architects, right? So an architect deals with three-dimensional space. So that's a really interesting linguistic shift that happened. So, and around, you know, through information architects and then later into user experience designers, they are all starting to think about web um, interaction with web or online um, materials as experiences, as somewhat three-dimensional or multi-dimensional in that people are going to be moving from one to another but not in a linear format. So, again, I think that we have a lot to learn in museums from what's happening um, outside of our field and looking at how we can embrace the fact that stories don't need to be linear but can still be understood. Um, That's yeah. very interesting that, that you uh, raised the issue about websites because as you were you know, beginning to talk about narrative, it reminded me that I just uh, revamped my uh, uh, CB Services, Carol Bossert Services website and uh, working with a fabulous web developer and it was as each... Uh, and this was the first time that I hadn't been presented with one of those uh, flow diagrams, but instead mm -hmm. uh, was more of a storyboard. And at each page, uh, which I suppose could have you know, be similar to an exhibit or a node within a in an exhibit, it was then a starburst because mm -hmm. there were links here and there were links here, and some people might do, you know, go uh, directly to the contact page, but they might be more interested in a, uh, a blog that I had written or a portfolio piece of something that I had done before. And, and, and collectively, I suppose this is the story of Carol Bossert Services, but it, uh, it, and it's not linear, and in fact, there's no defined endpoint uh, and mm -hmm. and I think that that is uh, is is a, also a way that that we can start looking at uh, museum exhibits uh, uh, um, or some of the uh, the actually there are books out there that you could pick your own ending depending on where you yeah. where you ended up in the book and maybe that's something uh, a, an mm -hmm. approach that that might help us. Um, 
Mm-hmm. In the in the um, in the time we have have remaining, you talked about your research, which I find fascinating, and but also your students. Uh, I am very interested in how you actually equip your students to take on the challenges not only of working in in museums today, but inevitably working in the museum of ten years from now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we of course, teach our students all of the elements of, of today's project team processes, um, both for, from very large museums down to small museums or single, even single-person entities. You know, how might you move through the process now of uh, developing and designing and installing and then evaluating an exhibition? Um, we, so all of that we, we teach. Um, but then, and that, that's usually in our first year, we, we get into a lot of that. And then the second year, our students are doing their thesis, they're doing some more experimental studio work, and we do things like, um, well, like storyboarding. I mean, you brought it up with your, your website development. Uh, we look at how we can do visual storytelling, um, which then can be transformed into physical three-dimensional storytelling. And so what that does is it allows us to break free of the word doc. Um, I, you know, I come back to that a lot, is that when you are writing an essay, you write it in a certain format. When you're creating an exhibit, you, are, you really shouldn't be writing an essay. You shouldn't start from an essay, actually, um, because your final product is not an essay. Um, and so we, visual storyboarding um, is a really good way to start to, like, break out of that and start to think about the experience and the experience of the story as opposed to the sort of reading of the story. Um, we also we also do a lot of workshopping or charrettes. Um, just to be more simple, we, we kind of refer to them as workshops, where when a student is working on a project, whether it's in one of their studio classes um, or especially when they're in thesis, um, we actually hold uh, sessions where more than one student is involved in helping that the other first student to develop their project. And we might look at um, diagramming visitor experience, for instance, where we would actually get out giant boards and markers and we start to diagram, meaning like drawing on the board, what is the visitor experience and what are we hoping the visitor gets from each of these parts of the experience. Um, and this is, this is one example of us using the starting point of an exhibit is a big idea as opposed to a narrative. Um, but from that big idea and from the sort of accumulation of the experience, the narrative comes through. And in order to get at that, it's really hard as, as one student or as one person to think creatively like in a vacuum. So we put our students, we force our students to be in these workshop settings where other people are involved in the creation of their ideas. And I think at first it's frustrating for some of the students, um, and just as it would be for any professional who all of a sudden gets, uh, you know, a whole team involved in their, their work. Um, but it's actually great. I mean, it's, it's training ground for what you're going to be doing later in project teams, and it gives you that beautiful feedback between, um, between your ideas and the way that other people receive them. And what ends up happening is our students' thesis projects are so much richer and so much more well-developed uh, because of working with, with, um, in this workshop setting around their, their projects. Um, 
So that's one another way that we help our students to start thinking about working in teams, but also in conceiving of forms of exhibition that might not exist currently today. You know, what it, this reminds me uh, as well as uh, in the uh, science and engineering world, the myth of the uh, single or sole genius. And I think that that is a myth that is pervasive throughout our, our country, perhaps in Western civilization, uh, that you know, Working alone, one person, you know, just has this aha moment and it all comes together where, in fact, almost everything that we've done as a society is a collective uh, team project. It sounds as if you're really working to teach those skills that students can apply to any aspect of uh, wherever their career may take them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have our students become exhibition designers, but they also go on to do a lot of other things that are in the creative world. So these are ways of working that anybody who is working on creative projects will have to work, I mean, regardless of what the end product is supposed to be. Um, being able to to take feedback and not take it personally, <laughs> um, I mean, that's basic art school 101, but, but it's also at, at an, in a graduate level, you really need to take that to heart. And it's not just that you don't take it personally. It's that you learn from feedback and you modify and you take it as, um, you know, as really valuable to have, um, to have that back and forth around creative ideas because um, the more ideas that are being generated and the more feedback that happens, actually, the closer you will get to something really, really fantastic. That's uh, that's very well said, and of course the parallels are are true in science. I mean, listeners know that I have my uh, my degree is in uh, uh, is in the scientific laboratory, and uh, you know the the cardinal rule was never take your data seriously, or uh, well, never take it personally, uh, and sometimes <laughs> never take it seriously. Uh, so it just goes to show that uh, C. P. Snow was right. The sciences and the and the humanities need to come together. Um, Claire, yeah. it has been a true pleasure uh, talking with you today. Uh, I wish I could go back to graduate school. I'd take your class. Uh, it sounds <laughs> as if it's a, it, it, it would be a lot of fun uh, as well. And uh, we've had some really, you've given me some really good things uh, to think about and ways of talking about exhibit design that uh, I know will expand my thinking and my practice. So thank you so very much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you, Carol. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. And we will be back next week with another edition of Museum Life. Again, thank you all of you who listen to this show. Uh, It's very, very gratifying uh, to see the numbers increase every week and particularly uh, to be used in a number of museum studies programs across the country. So thank you. Thank you very, very much. Uh, This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. I'll see you next week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.